Hello, Texans. I'm Susanna, and this is The Susanna Gibbs Show. I've been fortunate enough over the past 25 years to have two careers, one as an actress and producer, the other as an insurance agent. And it's a very interesting mix of art and business, but I'm a sucker for a good story. I'm also kind of a dork for process, so that's a lot of what you're going to hear about on this podcast. We're going to hear from artists, idealists, entrepreneurs, the hows, the whys, choosing to get up again when all may be lost, seems lost. Today is an archived edition of Gib Agency because we're on vacation. It's a mere 145 degrees here in Texas, so we're going to go get out in the sun, hang out in the water, do a water park with the family. So it should be really fun. What we've done for this edition is we have two excerpts from previous podcasts. One is John Metter. He's the pastor of Cross City Church and his relationship with God and how that changed through hardship. We're also going to hear from Rick Smith, who similarly had a big talk with God one night, made some promises, and made some changes in his life. I hope you enjoy. At the end of this podcast, we're going to end it with an insurance tip because the insurance agency sponsors the whole thing. Again, mix, art, business, all good things. And it'll, you know, send you out into the world a little bit smarter. And now, on with the show. So today on the podcast, I have John Metter. Am I saying your name right before we even get started? That's correct. He's a pastor of Cross City Church in Euless and the author of God's Not Done With You, Encouragement from the Bible's Greatest Comeback Stories. Thank you so much for being with me. Well, I'm thrilled to be with you, Susan. Thank you for asking. So you've been a pastor for 35 years, is that right? Uh, nearly 40 now, nearly 40, the last uh, 17 here at Cross City, which used to be called First Baptist Church Euless. It's right next to the Dallas-Fort Worth Airport. And we changed our name uh, about four years ago because we were planting some satellites in different cities. And so Cross City Church became the uh, the main name. <clears throat> we're Cross City Euless. We have Cross City Keller. We have other plans for other locations. Oh, that's great. When did you decide that you were going to be a pastor? I couldn't find the answer to this question in all of my research, and I just feel like there's probably a good story there. There's a great story there. I was a college athlete, and I played basketball in college and had no intention of uh, going into ministry. My father was actually a pastor and a very good one, a very genuine, godly man. Um, I've been blessed with great parents. But I did not want any part of that. I didn't want a part of any part of pastoring. I was a believer. I walk walk with the Lord. But uh, I saw myself in athletics, and if not in athletics, then in business. And uh, so I got a business degree in college. But as I was going through the Bible, reading through the Bible on my own for the first time, my faith was really I was really owning my faith as a college student. That was my faith. It was not my parents' faith. It was it was me experiencing the Lord in a fresh way. And as I was Walking through the Bible, um, I got to the place uh, in the Bible called Ecclesiastes where uh, Solomon is saying vanity is vanity, all is vain. And he talks about just how vain the world is and how vain uh, different pursuits are if you're not following what God wants for your life. And in the the middle of the book of Ecclesiastes, I sense the Lord saying, I'm calling you to ministry. And I didn't know what kind of 
ministry. I had a lot of arguments about it because I couldn't hear well. I thought pastors need to be able to hear well. At the time, telephone technology wasn't so good, and so I didn't ever speak on the telephone, and I was terrified to speak in public. So all these things were just not adding up in my mind. And as I began to pray about this over a period of time, God just began to answer every question uh, in a very spiritual, biblical way, and I came away going, wow, um, I would be uh, foolish not to hear that call to preach. Uh, in essence, God told me, uh, not in audible voices, but in, in a voice that was very unmistakable, if you can hear me, that's the one you need to hear the most. And so over the course of my ministry, I've tried to hear the Lord better than anything else. <clears throat> I have two questions I want to ask at the same time, and I'm trying to decide which one to go with first. Um, I'm going to dip back to athletics for, a set, for um, just a second. How did you compensate for your lack of hearing on the athletic field? Because you can't hear the whistle. You can't hear the referee. Football was wild in high school because um, you sure can't hear it on the football field. It's a much bigger field. And so I, I often played much longer than I should have on any given play and maybe got a few penalties out of that. But on the basketball court, it was a little more obvious when the play stopped. And so that's, that's kind of how that worked. That, that whistle is too shrill for me to hear. So consequently, um, I just kind of became alert through just peripheral vision and being able to see everybody stopped. And, and uh, so that's how that worked. Uh, uh, it, didn't, it didn't end up being too bad. Okay. Now, the <laughs> other thing was, as a pastor of 40 years, I would assume you've done your fair share of counseling. Do you feel like you're, you're hearing lack of, loss of, probably that, there's a better way to say that, gave you a little bit of street cred when you were talking to people about overcoming adverse, adversity? There's no doubt. Um, there have been many times when someone has uh, described some sort of a handicap or difficulty uh, where they felt like they were behind everybody else. And, and I could honestly look at them and say, I know exactly how you feel when it comes to being behind. Um, grades were always difficult for me. Some social circumstances were not easy. It, 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 it's easy to identify for me with people that have those kinds of struggles uh, that are unchangeable things, things that they wonder, why does God not change this? Why did God not heal me or help me more? So I can certainly identify with that. But Susan, I would also say, I think this is, um, this is something that just kind of, um, I think, impresses me over the years. I have to listen really intently for me to hear what, what someone is saying. And most people are not good listeners. And so for me to listen carefully to them when they speak is appreciated. Now, they don't know that I can't survive without listening intently. They don't often think of it that way. They think, well, he's a good listener. He really does hear me. And, uh, but, but I have to listen intently. And I think that that, uh, that, along with the compassion element, helps me in ministry. Do you feel like people's reactions to hearing loss as a child are different than now you're an adult? Um, yes. Yes, I do. Um, if you're a child and you lose your hearing, you, you are, uh, you're in a spotlight that adults aren't. Uh, children are not normally as compassionate as adults may be with any shortcomings. And so there's the ridicule, there's the mocking that goes on, and then there's the self-identity issue, which I struggled with growing up. 
and trying to find some level playing field, so to speak, where I'm equal to you was a quest that I had. I mean, I need to be equal to you, I would say to people, or think at least in my mind. And I'm not equal to you because I can't hear as well as you can. I can't function in some ways as well as you can. So it, it became an identity issue with me, and, and I use sports as my playing field. I can't, I, can't, uh, I can't compete with you in the classroom, but let's go out on the football field and I can take care of you. And uh, that kind of thing. And that's, just a, that's not the right way to live, but it's what I dealt with and that's what children deal with. Um, you know, adults, adults have a little bit different way of going about that. Uh, I humorously remember uh, a doctor, my hearing doctor, saying to me when I was a young boy uh, that you must wear hearing aids or you can't function. I didn't want to wear them because they were obvious. He said, John, one day all your friends will have hearing aids. Well, I didn't realize he meant 50 years later, 60 years later, but it's true. <laughs> all my friends have hearing aids now. <laughs> yes, a lot of us will need them very soon. Some of them are, some of us already have it. What do you think as a pastor is one of your more challenging aspects of your profession? Well, I think the last five years in particular, um, the world has changed. It's turned upside down. Pandemic is a piece of that, but you have politics, race, you have all kinds of issues that are different today than they were five years ago. Uh, I remember saying something to someone about a week ago that things I wrote down 30 years ago about struggles that people have and what people are having now as struggles are light years different. It's just so much different. Um, so you've got your gender issues, sexuality issues that weren't even imaginable 30 years ago. So I think pastoring um, is walking with people who experience some of those things in their own lives or in their families. The po political division and the race division that we've experienced in the last five years is unlike anything I've seen in years. And so I think that complicates pastoring and it, it gives us a bigger challenge. Is there an answer to it? Yes, but it's a challenge as well. What's the answer? Well, the answer is to come together under the kingdom of God. Christ and the kingdom of God is the great equalizer. When we come to faith in Christ, uh, there is no male or female or, or there's no color or background. It doesn't matter where you're coming from. But it does, it does mean that you become subservient to Christ and what he's calling us to. And um, so that's the great equalizer. There's answers to every issue. But compassion in how we interact with people that don't agree with us uh, has to be what the believer does. We have to... Learn to love people that are not like us. And uh, we don't have to agree with them, but we do have to love them, and we do have to help them understand why we believe what we believe out of the Bible. What's your best day look like as a pastor? You know, I, I love my staff. I love interacting with them. So my best day uh, is not necessarily on a Sunday, even though I love my people as well. Um, but I think my best day as a pastor is, is when people are actually understanding uh, what God has called us to do, responding to the gospel, seeing their lives changed. I mean, man, I live for that. And I live for those experiences where we're able to bring friends with us or people that maybe haven't heard the gospel, the good news before, and realize it really is good news and it really is the answer. Uh, those days I love and uh, wouldn't trade them for anything. They're better than any sports highlight could ever be, better than any comeback season or comeback game. Now, I saw that you guys have a podcast as well, which pulls a lot from your sermons from Sundays. Mm -hmm. How long do you prep for those sermons? Do you start working them out months? Oh, normally weeks? I'll, I'll... Well, sometimes I'll, I'll plan out for months 
uh, a year's worth of messages in the sense of where I'll be, what uh, series I may be in. Uh, Over the last 17 years, I've preached through 15 different books of the Bible. So sometimes I will... um, I will know a year and a half in advance I'm going to be in the book of John for this year or whatever it might be. So um, we do preach through entire books of the Bible that way. And on all of our venues, we have five different preaching venues on a given Sunday morning, and they all preach the same text and we study together. So there's a lot of planning that goes in with that. But on a normal week, 15 to 20 hours is not unusual for one message. So Easter Sunday's coming up. I'm going to be preparing at least 15, 20 hours for the 30 minutes I'm going to speak on Easter Sunday morning at those various times. Um, so that's, that's kind of how it works. You invest a lot into those messages because those are moments where people get to hear the truth uh, that's well thought through and hopefully applicable to their lives. Do you have other pastors in other cities or churches or denominations or religions that you like to bounce ideas off of, get together with? You have a church club. <laughs> Oh, certainly. Oh, yeah, church club, I don't think no, we call it that, but we do have pastor's conferences. And um, yes, there's, there are several conferences like that. There's the denomination level where we have um, about 2,500 churches in Texas that I'm uh, somewhat involved with. So we have some opportunities like that. There's also what's called a mega metro pastor's conference that I go to annually. These are pastors of churches that are larger than, say, 3,000 in attendance. And so we, we work along ideas of, about what our challenges are, which are sometimes different from uh, churches of different sizes. So those guys are guys in my timelines, on my uh, uh, social media, and they're a quick text away whenever we have some questions or they have some questions. It's great to interact with guys like that. What is that. the size of your church? Well, we have about 6,000 6, active attenders. Um, the... Um, you know, the, the dynamic of who attends every week has changed in the last five years. So uh, the average attender attends 1.8 to 1.9 times a month is, a, is the average that is nationally uh, quoted. But about 6,000 different people worship here on a regular basis. When did you go to Tennessee? Because you were a pastor there for seven years, is that right? I pastored there from uh, 1999 to 2006 in Chattanooga. So that's over on the far east side uh, of Tennessee. Beautiful, beautiful place, wonderful church there called Woodland Park Baptist Church. Really, I was reluctant to move back to Texas after being in that beautiful place where there were actual mountains and rivers and trees. What did draw you back? Obviously the job. I think, uh, well, definitely, I I felt definitely called by God to come back here. I didn't didn't really want to come back um, because so many great things were happening there. But as a pastor, we really serve uh, at the discretion of the Lord. We, we, want, we want to know that we're in a place not because it's a job or because you've uh, been given an offer to be there, but we want to be there because we believe God has called us there. So that's what brought me to Texas and to this church. And uh, this church is an amazing church. God has worked in it for so many years. It's about 120 years old, but some, some of the great men that I've known in my lifetime have pastored in this church, and I feel very privileged to stand on their shoulders. All right, really important question. Better barbecue, Tennessee or Texas? Oh, I'm calling Texas on that one. Now, Tennessee's got great barbecue, but 
oh, you have so many great places here in Texas, and it's a it's a quest to get to all the, of them. Yes, a lot of people make it a passion. Is that something that you're passionate about? Oh yes, I love it. I'm in barbecue every week. That and Tex-Mex, one place or another. Very good. Well, John, tell people where they can find you. Well, Cross Teddy Church is right uh, just due west of Dallas-Fort Worth Airport on Airport Freeway. So it's on the south side of the airport. It's part of the hearst Euless bedford Mid-Cities area. And so it's literally 15, 20 minutes from almost any place in uh, Dallas-Fort Worth area. Uh, on Sundays, especially when the traffic's not so bad. So I, I have a son that lives in the colony. He could make it over here in 25 minutes on Sunday morning. It's just not hard. So we, um, we're right in the middle of everything. It's a, it's a, it's a multi-ethnic church. We have people of all backgrounds here. It's intergenerational. So we have people that are young, people that are old. We have traditional and contemporary worship services, international and Spanish-speaking. We've got it all. So we would love to invite people to experience a Good Friday cross service is coming up where I actually carve a cross out of a 20-foot pine tree while I preach. So in 30 minutes, I start that with that log, and I cut it down while I preach. And, and, uh, and so we really kind of relive the moments of the cross on Good Friday. And um, so many people come to that and then, of course, to Easter Sunday services on and Sunday mornings. And how can mornings people find your book? In our well, the book can be found anywhere online, Amazon, uh, Lifeway, Christian Book Distributors, Target, Walmart, you name it. Online is, uh, is the way to go these days with books, and so it's all over. And I, I encourage people to read it because it's an encouraging book. It does encourage us to realize that God's not done with us and that no matter how far behind the game we may feel we are or no matter what's happened in our lives that we think is insurmountable, it's not insurmountable for God. So I really want people to read this because of the message. More than anything else, God's not done with us. That was John Metter of Cross City Church. And now, here's Rick Smith from Rock Bottom Outreach. Well, Rick Smith, thank you so much for being on the show with me today. I appreciate having you here, and I'm so excited for everybody to hear your story. Well, Susanna, I appreciate it. I'm excited to be on here when I saw your I, I'm not even sure how I saw it, maybe on Facebook or something. And um, kind of started me thinking like, man, what a great opportunity to share my journey. And well, and insurance had a lot to do with it because it almost cost me my life. And I was like, what a better fit. I, well, and you know, it's it's kind of a stretch sometimes to connect the stories with insurance, but yours is definitely an easy one. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk us back, I think. I'm going to walk us back to, I think, when did you start Rock Bottom Outreach? Started Rock Bottom Outreach in 2009. I hit Rock Bottom in 2008 with a pill addiction that had kind of built over a 10-year period. Um, you know, it's really funny. I went to church on Sunday. You know, everybody thinks drug addict, long hair, and Cheech and Chong, right? But I look just like I do today. So you never would have known. And so had all American family was coaching in a small Texas community. Everybody knew us. I'd won two state titles as a coach. And um, it was one of those deals that just over time, I've had multiple surgeries, former bull rider athlete. And the doctors just started giving me, you know, pain pills. And over time, it turned into over a 10 year period, it turned into a full blown addiction. And so. It was actually 
Go ahead. Have you paid attention to some of the like, you know, you talked about um, your pill addiction. Have you followed um, some of the stuff going on up in Ohio and those? Because it's it was pretty much at that time when people really were prescribing narcotics just like it was candy, right? Yeah, it was. I mean, and, and so, you know, they didn't blink to give me 260 Norco, which is, you know, Vicodin. I mean, that was normal. You know, you would go in or you'd call it in and they just, re- you know, they just prescribe it. I mean, and so, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, you know, I had a couple of doctors. I mean, I'll be honest with you. That's kind of when I knew I was in trouble. Bottom line, I was hooked. I just didn't know what to do. Right. You know, it's not like I was going to go and just like, hey, by the way, I think I've turned into an addict because you certainly everybody's got something in their closet. Here I'm a coach. If I admit I'm an addict, I'm going to lose my identity. And my identity was coaching. And and so my priorities were backwards. So anyway, because of that rock bottom, you know, I felt the need to bridge the gap for someone like you and I that all of a sudden you're struggling and you don't know what to do. Would you, and so would you that share is, that, that moment? Ahead. Would you, I know this is kind of a tough moment for you, but would you share that moment when you, when you were like this, this is it, this, this has to stop. Cause I know it was, I know it scared you. Well, it did. Um, you would have thought it was enough that at the very end of school, May 08, when you get a call from a neighbor and he asks you if you're moving and then you discover your wife has taken your three boys and left. And we've never been a family again of, of that day. I mean, when they were, she was gone. And so, but because I'd been named the head coach at a local school, I'm like, I'll just fix this myself. But I had a pastor say, you know, Rick, you got to hit rock bottom. And I'm like, what do you think this is? Well, fast forward, I'm trying to stay alive. I'm trying to coach. It's August. I'm now getting drug tested, right? Which is very humbling. And so now I'm getting drug tested. So I test clean. I get to have my boys for the weekend. And so I'm excited to get to have my boys again. Well, we had a scrimmage game in Perrinwood, Texas, and I had retaken Xanax. So that was one of my, what you call DOC, drug of choice. And under the influence of that Xanax on a farm road, the boys were in the truck. I crossed the center line on a farm road and I sideswiped an 18 wheeler. That right there was my rock bottom when yeah. you you ain't gonna talk your way out of that and so that cost me the rights to my boys for a year and i almost killed my children and then also the truck driver but luckily we walked away by the grace of god so that was the moment that i knew that it was time to surrender but it cost me everything suzanne it really did yeah that's hard that's mm-hmm. hard so you go through I guess because you said you hit rock bottom in 2008, you started the ministry in 2009, mm-hmm. and then you're working through that. When did they say, "Hey, Rick, you've you've got a problem with your heart"? Um, I was having a nervous breakdown over what was going on, and all of a sudden, um, started having extreme short of breath. I couldn't walk up three stairs without sucking air. And that's when um, I was referred to a cardiologist that had, had a PCP. You know, I go in to like, hey, I need some help. You know, what's going on here? And they did a, a EKG and echo and said, hey, we need to get you to the cardiologist. And that's kind of when they sat me down and said, here's what's going on. You have a fluid around your heart. You've suffered heart failure. It's called 
stress-induced cardiomyopathy. And they said, you probably won't grow old. It's irreversible. Hmm. You know, here I am, I'm 40 years old and told, you're probably going to die, you know, to let that sink in. And um, Did you think you'd hit rock bottom once again? Well, my mindset at the time was maybe I deserve this because mm-hmm. of what I've done to my children, because I still had a lot of stinking thinking. Yeah. If you would, you know, that a, a false belief system, you, you know, is what it was. But, I, but I'll tell you what it was. It, it was one night and I heard a song and the chorus said, I'll do whatever it takes to turn this around. And I think we need a, a life motto. I think we all do something that drives us. Well, I grabbed a piece of paper, man, and I wrote that down and I was like, I'll do whatever it takes to turn this around. Like, so be it. If I'm going to die, I'm going out swinging and I'm going to, I'm going to do anything I can to inspire, but I'm taking my life back. And that is when I began to put my feet on the floor every morning to find a reason to get up. But I first had to do it for myself is what it was. And I began to focus and invest in Rick Smith. And that was through recovery, uh, being discipled, going to church, working out, I was determined for that first year to like focus on Rick Smith. When did you, when did you make your, your bargain with God? It was actually uh, August 16th, 2008. The night I hit the rock bottom. Yeah. Um, I paced the house in the dark through the night. I'll never forget it. And I finally, I cried out to God and I said, if you're there, I got to know it. I have to know it. Because I was what you call a carnal believer, where I kind of sat on the throne and I referred to God occasionally, mm. but only when I wanted him. You know what I'm saying? Like, hey, God, help me get this new car or help us win this football game. But I never really had sold out. But that night, I said, if you give me my life back, I'll serve you from this day forward in a minute. And he gave me my word. And I think sometimes if you'll listen closely, God gives you a word. And it was steadfast. And means not to the right or the left, but continually move forward. And that has been my, my motto ever since is the word steadfast. And, I, and that's when I began to bottle, I mean, to, to, to battle. But um, I don't think I negotiated with God. I, I, was, I was making a promise. Not like, hey, Suzanne, I promise I'll be on there at 9 a.m. I'm talking, I, I made a promise to God. Like, <laughs> like God, I mean, how am I going to go back on that, right? Mm-hmm. And knowing what he's done as hard as the journey has been. But it was August 16, 2008. Okay. That's what it was. So I know I'm jumping around, but that's okay. So go you ahead. get. Go ahead. I know you get the heart diagnosis. You run through a lot of different medicines. You try a lot of things. When, because you told me this story, when did you meet with the doctor at UT Southwestern? That was a big pivotal moment for you. Well, I actually, um, you know, it, it was a couple of times. Um, I had a cardiologist named Daniel Caldwell, which w- has been phenomenal. And, and in 2010, they actually put a pacemaker in. And everyone always goes, yeah, my grandma's got one of those or my grandpa's got one of those. I'm like, I know. I, I'm aware of that. <laughs> and like, thanks for rubbing that in, you know. But um, so I had a pacemaker and a defibrillator. And so actually during football season one time, it actually, I wanted what they call VTAC and it went off during oh, the football no. game. I thought the ball hit me in the chest out of bounds, doubled me over, 
buddy uh, to the right says, what's wrong with you? And I go, oh my gosh, dude, I think my thing went off. And he goes, what does that mean? <laughs> and I go, we got to get to the ambulance. So by that time we get to the ambulance, I'm back in a normal rhythm. So, but I end up in the hospital, Dr. Caldwell comes in and, but I text him all the way to the hospital. And I said, my device went off and I kid you not, he wrote back, LOL. This is funny, Hal. How's this funny? <laughs> yeah, right. You know, and, and, and so at the hospital, he said, I wasn't laughing at you. He goes, that's why you have it. He said, you know, you would have died. Right. And so mm-hmm. it kind of hits you like, oh my gosh, like I'm really sick mm-hmm. because I had maintained with medication. But go, let's go to 2018. That's when they're like, I need you to meet with a transplant team. And I go in there, but I do real well on the test. But I asked this question, and this was where I was mentally. What if I just want to ride my tractor, country term, until it runs out of gas? That was my question. Mm-hmm. And so they kind of said, like, not do it. And I said, yeah, that's what I'm saying. And they said, well. It's your, your life. I mean, it, it's up to you. And, and, and my boys knew the answer to that. They just never wanted to talk about it. Right. But they felt I was tapping out is what it was. But that was, that was 2018. And um, no one ever has realized how sick I've been. I, I'll be honest, you know, and just um, because I started listening to what a transplant would involve and it was a million and a half dollars. And I'm like, I'm a million and a half short, man. There's no way I'll ever be able to out of pocket and all that pay for that. Like, I'll just ride the tractor. I'm cool with the tractor. It's cheaper. This <laughs> is my mindset. So yeah, that was 2018. It's first time that with them up until this past January, November. Is that when the doctor stood up and gave you a hug and said, we're here with you? Yeah, you can you know do it. In, yeah, you know you're in trouble when um, I call them tricks. Okay, that if if you knew me real well and you knew I had heart failure, but you saw me drink like an energy drink, you'd be like, "Are you stupid? Why are you doing that?" Because you have no energy when you have heart failure. Mm. So I had these little tricks that would help me get through. Here I'm still coaching. I'm doing ministry. I'm a hospice chaplain. You know, I'm, I'm doing, man, I'm Tigger, man. I'm like getting things done. I'm bouncing around. But all of a sudden, my trick's not working no more. Mm-hmm. I used to, during the cold weather, it would open the bronchioles and I could breathe. But all of a sudden, that's not working. Now I feel like my heart's going to explode. Go to the PCP. She runs the labs. She's like, it's called BMP. Like, your numbers are out or through the roof. You got to go to the cardiologist. So that's when she sent me to Caldwell. And that's when they did an echo. Caldwell comes back and he looks me right in the eye. And he said, Rick, I can't do anymore. You're, you're rapidly declining. Medication's not working. He said, it's time to go to do a transplant and get evaluated. And I'm sitting there with my mouth open. And when I, and all of a sudden he hugs me, like I stand up, he hugs me in front of hug. And he said, I won't let you go through this alone. And boy, it hit me to say, I'm, if I don't do this, I'm dying. I'm going to die. Like, I may not make it another year is, is what he told me. And uh, that's when he called Dr. Mark Dranser, and he's the chief of cardiology at UT Southwestern, which is the number one transplant hospital in the nation. Mm-hmm. And so um, 
that they rapidly got me in. And, and that's when we had that first discussion at UT Southwestern. And they began to kind of tell me what that looked like exactly. Do they do any coaching for you as far as, because, you know, um, I know they talk a lot about what medically is going to happen during a transplant, but do they talk much about emotionally how you're going to feel? Like, did you ever feel guilty about getting a heart transplant from somebody else or whether you deserved it or. Yeah, they, um, they leave no stone unturned. Okay. I'm going to be honest with you. They, uh, because when they have a transplant team, they got a transplant team and we're talking psychologists, psychiatrists, social workers, they have mastered the art of this thing, but they can talk all day long, but you're really not prepared for it. You're not that you're not really that prepared until all of a sudden reality sets in to like, you got somebody else living inside of you. Mm-hmm. And, um, they, um, even upon discharge, they send you home with sunscreen, like, pill cutters like they have not missed anything at all they're very thorough but you know they talk about it talk about you know a lot of the questions what do your support system look like that you're going to need for your recovery they want 24 7 coverage really for the first six weeks so there's a lot of involvement but uh, you can only hear but it's like the roller coaster you can hear about it but you got to ride it to experience it well i've now been on the roller coaster (laughs) and so did did your dick did your previous addiction come up as far as whether you would be eligible for a transplant? Boy, you are good at this. You're good at this. I'm going to pet, man, people are going to think you and I like already did this already. You're good at this. Wow. That is a great question. That is what scared me the most. So you got, you're in the hospital for two weeks doing this evaluation. Everybody that has an MD, but even, you know, the dentist, the psychologist, Sure enough, social worker starts to drill me about that addiction. So, okay, it's 2023, y'all. And and we had an incident November 2023 that I had to fire a doctor that could have cost me my sobriety. Uh, Mm. Just to be honest with you, it's important to have the right doctor. So I had to fire him, get a new PCP that doesn't prescribe anything. Well, I just haven't mentioned that. All of a sudden, next visit I get is the psychologist. And I get drilled, drilled about 2008. What did you take? Did you borrow them? Were you selling them? How many were you taking? Did you have multiple doctors? And when she walked out, Susanna, I'm thinking, I'm not going to get a heart. There's no way. That's going to be a deal. No way. that's That's a deal breaker right there is what it is. They are... There, I, I was so upset. Did you have any like fears that people would walk up to you randomly and be like, "Why do you, why do you get to jump the line? Why do you get a heart?" I can't imagine anybody ever did it, but that it would be something I would worry about. You know, this random conversation that would probably never happen, but right. Um. Yeah. Uh, or did it happen? No, it, it just, um, yeah, it, it has. Being visible in the community and, and like you do podcasts and people recognize you in the community, 
they feel they know you, even though you don't know them, <laughs> you know? And so they feel freely to come up to you. But like, I think it's amazing. My brother was on the list, but he died before he got a heart. That doesn't make you feel very good. You know, because you're like that little song, why, you know, why me, Lord, what did I ever do? That old Chris Christopherson song, yeah, you know, but yeah, absolutely. Because people go on the list and they may wait for years. There's a little boy that's, I know of seven years old Mm -hmm. and this little boy has opted to just be a little boy. And I know what that means because understand when, and I got the phone call after, and I didn't think I was going to get it. I honestly didn't because of what you brought up about the addiction. And they kind of said, well, we just want to make sure you have a support system because you're going to have to be on narcotics. And when you discharge home, which I discharged home with no narcotics, by the way, praise God. I went home with Tylenol. That was it. Anyway, but they called on a Thursday morning after the team met because your life is in their hands. It's for them to decide because if you are a heavy smoker, drinker, vapor, or other type diseases, they will not offer you a heart. They will not. You don't have the support system. They won't do. And so they called and said, congratulations. If you can imagine getting this call, congratulations. We met and we want to offer you a heart. Offer you a heart. Yeah. So you're now like, wow. at this point, you're in the waiting process for a donor, right? So when you go into the hospital, and I don't remember this part of the story, so when you go into the hospital, it's not because the donor's ready, but it's because you have to go into the hospital, right? Yeah, he, um, I was put on what they call milrinone. Milrinone, they call jet fuel for the heart. And it's a pick line with, and it's in a backpack, and it goes 24-7. So that's what was keeping me alive. And so, but I could still go in the community or whatever, but you can only live on Milrinone for up to six months. But all of a sudden, like, it's pumping my heart for me, which hasn't been happening. And so basically, when they put me on Milrinone, they brought me in on what they call a level four when they put me on the list. And so I'm still on the football field coaching with Milrinone on, and all of a sudden, um, they redo my labs and they see I'm declining. And that's when I got a phone call from Dr. Hendren, who was the lead of my transplant team. And he said, it's time to come into the hospital. And that's when I got called in. And, and that was, um, that was, um, I think about May 13th is mm-hmm. when that was. And they brought me in and I was, I was admitted. And he said, Hey, you're too sick. We're not sending you home without a heart. So now it's a waiting game you know, to just like lay in the hospital and, and wait. But I really began to decline rapidly in the hospital. And, and, and all of a sudden things were changing very quickly and they took me to, they put me in the ICU. So you're in the ICU when they say, we've got a donor. What exactly did they say to you? Um, May 26th, I woke up and I'm on what they call a balloon pump. Balloon pump put me at level two. Went on the balloon pump May 25th, May 26th. You know, even they're they're looking at my numbers back and forth, the Dr. Um, Araj, and he's asking, what do you think? Because if you go on a balloon pump, you can't get out of bed anymore. Like, mm. you can't even bend your leg. And he's and I'm like, what do, you, what do I think? Like, you're the doctor, but I had to wrap my mind around it. So on the 26th, the next morning, I'm, a, I'm a asleep. 
and Dr. Farr walks in, never met her, but I'll, she kind of looks like you, which is really wild. Um, never met her. She wakes me. She kneels down and she said, Mr. Smith, I'm Dr. Farr with the transplant team. And I want to let you know, we have accepted a heart on your behalf, not looking at, but accepted, meaning we found a heart. And I grabbed her arm and I said, you're kidding. But then I mistakenly said, where's the heart? And she said, it's not been harvested yet. And Susanna, that's when it hit me that this young man, and it was identified as some in, in the early 20s, still had the heart. And I go, oh, my God. He has the heart still. And I broke down and I lost it. That's when they can talk about it. But until you get the news and realize someone's dying on your behalf, and they're not dead yet, clinically, that, you know, that's bigger than a Starbucks on a Monday morning. You know, you're like, wow, but she said, you can't think like that. This is a gift that he's giving you. And um, boy, I'll never forget that conversation. It was really fun talking with both John and Rick. They're both very, very nice men. I had a great time in the pre-interviews and the post-interviews, and it was definitely fun to revisit them this week. And now, I don't have a good segue. I'm just going to do an insurance story this week. It's another nice man, client of ours. However, he was hot. He was so mad. He'd gotten into a claim, and when he took his car to be repaired, um, the insurance estimate was in his opinion, way too low. It was only like $1,000, and the repair place was like estimating at least four. Now, this is something that we're seeing more and more, um, and it even happened to me in, when I got hit earlier this year. The first estimate that comes from the insurance company, because they don't even come out and look at it anymore. You upload pictures, it's low. And the damage place told me, hey, we don't really know what it's going to be until we pull your car apart and see what's underneath and what it is. And once we do that, we'll submit an adjusted estimate to the insurance company. And in both cases, everything worked great. So if this happens to you, don't panic when the first estimate comes. Let the repair shop and the insurance company talk and they'll work it out. And if you have an issue, then get your insurance agent involved. We're always happy to help. Thank you so much for being here. Again, please share this podcast. We appreciate that you spend time with us and hope that you will share it with some of your friends too. Go to GiveAgencyDallas.com to connect with us and we'll see you again next week.